Hey, this is the Founder Stories podcast. I'm Imogen Baxter. So before I worked in venture, I worked in two startups and before them, I was a shift worker. When I first moved to Australia, I found it hard to get work. And so after trying and failing to get hired off the bat, for the first year, I had to volunteer my time to prove to employers that I was smart and capable. And to support these internships, I worked at a clothes shop that I hated and at a coffee shop that I loved. This wasn't new to me, really. My first job was at 13, was a waitress, earning £3.25 an hour at the cutest coffee shop in the world. And though the wage was a pittance, they let me take home the clotted cream at the end of the day, so I felt like a winner. And though my jobs and employers were all different, the experience of stepping into a new one was so familiar. Swapping a shift was always a nightmare. Checking I got paid correctly was mystifyingly hard. Working with friends I liked was hit and miss, and knowing in advance what shifts I'd work was usually a rare luxury. And this is pretty standard across all shift working industries. It's just a bit crap. Or at least it was, until Deputy came along. Today on the podcast, we meet Ashik Ahmed, the founder and CEO at Deputy, whose purpose is to take away all of that pain from shift working. It's trusted by 200,000 workplaces across the globe, and their story is just phenomenal. We started with Ashik in Dhaka, Bangladesh, where he was born. It's a very highly populated country, and for many people, like, you know, opportunity is very, very rare. And, you know, most of the population is probably below the poverty line as well. But I was born in a good middle-class family and my parents are educated and they had the opportunity to migrate to Australia and uh, which is such a big ticket in life. I mean, I always, always said that being Australian is not a right, it's actually a privilege. But having said that, I would say that my life in Bangladesh was quite privileged as well. I went to I was listening to uh, Shimon's story. He went to a military boarding school. I actually also went to a military boarding school because in Bangladesh, back then, um, you don't have to go there because you have to, but it was definitely a good career and life option back in the 80s and 90s. So my parents encouraged that I should go to a, what they call this cadet college for military boarding school. And a lot of the values I have in my life has been kind of instilled in me by going to a military boarding school, especially the value of like discipline, you know, being on time, being accountable, and always kind of striving for being better at what you do. I asked Ashik about how that discipline was enforced. Oh my God, it it was such a shock to the system. Like, you know, wake up at 5.15, you know, you're doing a lot of physical training, uh, by by six o'clock, come shower, run for breakfast, and then within fifteen minutes, straight in class. You do class all day, and then there's all these other things happen. And like you have seniors who who is literally like if you step on something that you're not meant to do, like if you're walking on the road and your feet touches the grass, that's a punishment. <laughs> you get punished for that. Ashik says that it wasn't just discipline that he learned in his time at boarding school, but also a strong sense of competition. I remember the first exam we had, and we used to have a graded exam, out of 56 of us, I was 49th. I'm like, wow, I mean, 
where previously where this school I came from was probably either first or second. And that's, that was a massive embarrassment. So how do I go home and tell my parents that, you know, I've done so bad, but then I actually took it upon myself that hmm, I got to aim to be the first boy one day. It took me four years. I never became first, but the closest I got to it was second. But it, it's gone 49, then I was 33rd, then I was 25th, then I 79, 8. But that uh, kind of having a perseverance over here that, you know, you can force yourself to be better. That actually had played, I would say, in my deputy history later on as well, something that I live by every day. So Ashik and his family moved to Australia when he was 15. It was his first time on a plane. And if it's any indication of how influential this moment was to his life, you can still recite the flight information to a T. I remember it like yesterday. Uh, Cathay Pacific flight CX-105 landing at gate 8 in Melbourne Airport at 10.15 a.m. Like, seriously, that, that's like oh, such a turning point in my life. And um, then the struggle in life started. Struggle in life meaning uh, from being in a middle-class family to land in Australia where your parents couldn't necessarily get jobs. We are all of us living in a tiny one-bedroom apartment in Brunswick, Melbourne. It was really uncomfortable. And uh, as a migrant into a new country, this lack of hope, any, any chance and frustration, many people give up. And my parents actually wanted to go back and they'd, each of them alternatively did go back. I, I was actually kind of pushy that now we don't want to go back. You know, Australia will definitely have a better life for all of us. And uh, good that we didn't, but it, it taught me a lot of life lessons as well. Back then, like I was the first person in my family to get a job coming into Australia. I started working at Hungry Jack's for $5.22 an hour. And yeah, uh, starting during the day in school and then, you know, working at night. There's, there's a lot of hardship memories, things, now that I look back upon, I mean, back then there was just void as far as what the future will hold for, for the whole family. But now, you know, now these are memories. Ashik and I spoke at length about what could loosely be called the immigrant mindset, the hardships of moving to a new country and adapting to all of the new systems and culture. It's common among many of our founders. Ashik believes that while tough, it gives you a distinct advantage. There's no sense of entitlement and there is like, you know, I'm going to do the best I can and I'm never going to uh, skip on a, any, any opportunity. That also <laughs> probably came into my entrepreneurship life as well in terms of how I've lived it. I kind of you know, took interest in computers. Um, very early on, I never saw a computer till I came to Australia and didn't necessarily have a computer to start with. But one of the first things I did with my earned money working at Hungry Jacks uh, was actually buy, um, buy a computer back then. I think it was a Pentium 2 233 with 32 meg of RAM. This is so long ago. I had a really good friend of mine who was an Australian. He actually works at Seek. He's the chief product officer of Seek now. Uh, I was at Jesse's house and I remember one day Jesse's mom coming and asking me, Hey, Sheik, uh, Reese, Reese is uh, her husband. They're looking for someone to help them with SQL. Do you think you can help them? Now, at that moment, I actually did not even know what SQL stands for. Then I asked, what are the chances she knows what SQL stands for? My answer to her was that 
I think I can be really good at it. <laughs> I didn't lie. I said, I can be really good at it. And she goes like, uh, okay, well, why don't I introduce you to Reese and you can go for an interview on Monday. It was Friday. And I'm like, okay. I left my friend's house immediately. I went to the university bookstore. I bought this thick book called Oracle Bible. I still remember it. And then I went to this other friend's house. Back then, everybody was on dial-up internet. And I begged him to download a trial version of Oracle. He had up to scale, got me that, okay, burned it, burned it in the city for me. I came home, loaded that up, uh, called in sick <laughs> at my, um, I think back then I, I switched from uh, Hungry Jacks to McDonald's. I called in sick. I didn't want to go. And, and I just spent that whole weekend reading everything about Oracle, SQL, did every exercise in that book, rocked up Monday for that interview, they gave me a problem to solve. Um, actually, a, a real thing to do because they haven't been able to do it in their business for quite some time. And the project was late for a customer and was able to solve that problem. And they're like, hired. That all happened Friday and Monday. And, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, uh, I think Richard Branson has a, a quote is that if somebody gives you an opportunity and you don't know how to do it, just say yes and figure it out as you go for it. Basically, that's how I, I got started. This story cracked me up. The confidence to say, yeah, I could be good at that. And it astounds me that this one decision to say yes, when so many others would have said no, radically changed his life. Because not only did he go on to study software and computer programming at uni, but he was already way, way ahead of his peers. I started studying megatronics, which is a subject about building robots and things. I thought that's what I'm going to do. But then I realized that, hey, Things around robotics are not that much fun because you have this physical limit of things that you got to move. But things around software is so much fun because you can just be as creative as you want and there's no limit in what you, how creative you can be. So I actually had uh, stopped doing megatronics and just fully focused on just computer science only. And I also realized that everything that I am learning right now in computer science in uni is about three to five years old than the technology that people use in industry. So I realized, you know what, I can just pass along <laughs> to get my degree, but I started working full-time at the same time. So I was doing full-time study as well as full-time work, but I probably learned more on the job than I did in uni. I think I realized that, hey, in life you move electrons or you move molecules or you move emotion to make an impact. Uh, electrons are far easier and cheaper to move than moving molecules. I'll just stick to the part of electrons where possible. Ashik started working as a contractor and built a reputation pretty quickly as the guy you'd ask about anything software related. Need a system built to help integrate MYOB in your finance team? Ask Ashik. Need to turn an Excel sheet into something useful? Ask Ashik. And it was on the back of one of these projects that Ashik met Steve Shelley, the founder of a business called AeroCare who becomes more important in a minute. But at this point, Steve wanted to build a system for employee feedback. Think Culture Amp before Culture Amp. And Ashik was like, I can do that. I built it for them in a web-based system. I demoed it to them and they said, how much should it cost? I actually did it really quickly and I said about $20,000. They said, great, okay, we'll buy it. And I'm like, hmm, I should probably go and get professional indemnity insurance in case something goes wrong. So I went to get it and the quote I received was $18,000. I'm like, what the hell? I'm gonna charge somebody 20 grand and have to pay 18 grand on insurance to get that work done. So I went back to them saying, hey, I can give this to you. If you really want it, you have to employ me. Okay, even if it's for two, three months. 
The business that Ashik had negotiated himself a job in, AeroCare, is an aviation ground handling business. So when you fly into an airport, side note, remember when we used to fly into airports? When you fly into an airport, in many cases, the people on the ground handling the bags, loading the plane, pushing back the plane, all of those things are part of the ground handling business. They're not directly employed by the airline. They're employed by people like Steve. And Steve's team was nearly 300. And it was a tough business. And I noticed the level of inefficiency that existed in that business. Like, I'll, I'll give you the prime example. If somebody calls in sick, saying that, hey, I can't come in, for Steve's case, as the owner of the business, he will have three options at that point. Number one, whoever has called in sick in a specific position, can you let that job just not happen, okay? It's very common in our white collar world, okay? If somebody called in sick, called in sick, fine. But when you're in a business where you're handling aircrafts and it's the guy who's supposed to push the plane back, okay? It's a very highly skilled role. You don't just get to jump in and do that. So, okay, what's my second option then? I stop doing what I'm doing and I go jump in to do that. And Steve or many of the other managers would do that from time to time. Okay. And that will mean that I sacrifice on what I had done, had promised with my family or other activities that I had. The third one, which is what will happen more often, that Steve will pull out his Nokia 8820D back then and go through the address bag and calling everybody that someone can come in or not. Okay. And yes, there will always be that yes man who comes and saves the day. But then one week they end up doing 100 hours of work and as an injury at work. Happens as well. And that is just something that was always happening. So I started building some simple systems to kind of digitize as much work as possible, especially around rostering people and tracking their time so that they're paid accurately. Net result of that was over the next three years, we were able to grow that business from 293 people to literally 1,400 people. And Steve got actually his life back meaning whilst he didn't necessarily see his kids grow up at all uh, for the first 10 years, he started the business in 1992. I joined about late 2003. Well, he didn't get to see his kids grow up at all. He now actually got his life back. He had another child, you know, uh, everything got better, okay? His life improved and his and business improved. I reached kind of my goal with that business and I, it, soon we realized that this tool became a competitive advantage for our care back then. And a lot of other people, a lot of other, our customers, as well as partners wanted to buy the product. But anyway, I reached my goal. I thought like, you know, hey, I want to go work somewhere else. I want to go work for the big four in US. And I was leaving, actually, I resigned, I was leaving. And just before I left for US, Steve tapped me on the shoulders like, you know, hey, all my friends who are struggling still to run that one restaurant, or that you know, one cafe or one hairdresser, they asked me, how did I happen to make all this wealth by cleaning plane while they're still struggling? And nobody had someone like you by their side to help them build all the systems. So maybe there's something, maybe you know, I'm thinking about starting a new business and why don't you come and work for me? And I thought about it and I'm like, you know, yeah, I'll do it. Only if we do it 50-50. The difference Ashik had seen his software make to Steve's life was enough to convince him to make his trip to the US a holiday and then return to focus squarely on building what became deputy. And I realized something that, hey, if I was able to make a difference in one business owner's life, what if I could do it for every other business owner? 
what if I was able to, you know, make their life better, help their business scale, which allows more people to find employment and make a positive impact in this world. That would be a really big thing, a big shift in this world. And we can truly make this world a better place. If you make entrepreneurs successful, they create more opportunities and jobs for people in the community they're in. And in return, everybody benefits. Uh, More families get food on the table, more kids get to go to college. Uh, All in all, it's just a, a better impact. And absolutely, I should be able to go and do this. I've done it for one business owner. I'll be able to do it for every other business owner in the world. And that's how you know, this theory of deputy came to life. And we agreed on that. We called it even deputy because we realized this system is going to be the second in charge, the second in charge to the business owner as well as employees. And yes, started in November, 2008. And it's been a wild ride. And Ashik realized that all his time, he had also been solving problems that he had experienced firsthand himself all those years ago when he first landed in Australia. I was a shift worker myself, okay? I worked in uh, Hungry Jacks. I worked in McDonald's. I saw the pain myself as a shift worker, in a sense, like, you know, what happens if I didn't want to come to work, you know, going and finding cover, even knowing that whether you get paid correctly or not. I mean, I already knew the pain from being a shift worker. I just never wanted to go and address that. I didn't necessarily know the pain of the manager on the other side. When I came into AeroCare and I saw firsthand how challenging it is for the manager to get things right, especially in the field of aviation, which is probably the most complex business. It's 24 hours, first of all. Secondly, it's heavily compliant. I mean, the joke in aviation is that it's 99% boredom, 1% sheer fear. I saw the impact you can have by what I like to call is removing mundane from people's life. Okay, because people just had accepted that this is how life is going to be. That's how you're going to work. And I think at this point, we should just zoom right out from AeroCare, right out from Ashik at Hungry Jacks, and just consider for a moment the industry of shift working. Two thirds of the working population in the world is hourly paid. It's your everyday worker, it's those essential workers that most of us probably take for granted. Okay, it's your bus driver, it's the barista, it's the people at the restaurant, it's in the in the farm, you name it. It's the people at the hospital, it's the nurses. They're all shift workers and hourly paid. And there just hasn't been any system or any product that really simplifies their life. When you're a shift worker, the mindset of a shift worker is much different than the mindset of a knowledge worker. We probably think about work all the time, okay, even on weekends and, th- and at, at nights. But for a shift worker, the moment they get off clock, they probably stop thinking about work. And when they're working, they're really, really intense at, at the work they do. And how you manage the shift workers in, into their shift, how you communicate with them is a lot different than how it happens in the knowledge worker world, okay? Like, you know, they're not sitting in front of a computer with Slack open, for example. For them, the time that they're taking break has to be very, very compliant versus having a late lunch break or early break. And it also very much differs based on the different kind of industries you're in. Like, you know, how work is managed at a hospital is much different than how work is managed at a restaurant versus a shop versus an airline. And, and given the segregation of 
shift work that happens in this world, there actually just hasn't been a system that takes care of it at all. That's one side of the equation in terms of like, you know, the rostering part, because you rostering I like to define as having the right employee at the right time doing the right job. Then on the other hand side, you know, you have the challenge of paying people accurately. People in the hourly paid market don't get a salary. They get paid by the hour. What that means is you have to keep track of time. And depending on the time people are working, they get paid different rate. Now, here's a bit of a blessing and curse of being here in Australia. Australia has one of the most complex labor laws in the world. Like, say, if you're a bartender and you work on a Friday night starting at, say, 5 p.m. and finish at 1 or 2 a.m. standard bar shift, for example, there's about four to five different rates of pay you'll get. There's one rate of pay between five to seven. There's another rate of pay between seven to 10. And then there's another rate of pay between 10 to 12. And there's, uh, if you uh, switched over to Saturday, then there's a Saturday night pay in there. Oh, you didn't get to have a break in between. Then there's a penalty load that is added to it. That is probably the simplest example I can give you. I mean, in the world of aviation, it was even far more complex than this. And I mean, I... I, I believe that most people actually don't even know that whether they're getting paid accurately or not. And that's why you see all these, you know, case studies like George Columbus and others in the paper. And then on top of that, there's this other challenge of when it comes to um, shift work is looking after the needs and wants of people. When people are doing shift work, it's very much like teamwork. There's different team dynamics. Some people like working with these people. Some other people don't like working with these other people. Someone can't do... Um, um, a Saturday shift that you have to swap with other people. There's all sorts of challenges that happen. And these things were all done on text, WhatsApp groups, uh, okay, Facebook groups, you name it, without actually having anything that automates it. Okay, people use lots of different platforms to communicate it. There's post-it notes. I have seen customer sites where people will come and write down their timesheet if they want to go and leave or take vacation, there's a pink book that you have to write your name saying that I'm going to go, go vacation this time and come check next week uh, that whether some managers assigned it or not. I have seen people having to go to work on a weekend to see the roster on the wall to, to know that when they're coming to work next week or not. And I've also heard stories and seen stories where people didn't know about the last minute change, didn't come to work because they didn't know about their shift and getting fired, saying that you didn't show up at work, so you got fired. These are all stories, true stories that I've seen happen. So at Deputy, we simplify all of this. We simplify all of this, and we see ourselves as the second in charge to the business owner or the manager, even the employee themselves, to really remove all this mundane from their life. This is Deputy in a nutshell. So. Deputy is an app that simplifies shift work. It simplifies it for employees. It simplifies it for managers. Managers can use Deputy to schedule and roster people. And employees use the app to know when they're working and make any changes they need to make. The app is also used for communication. It is also used for clocking in, uh, clocking out and establishing the time they have worked. It's Available in iOS, Android, 
iPad as a deputy kiosk, as well as on the web. Today, there's 250,000 businesses around the world that is using deputy. Deputy is a huge success story, but like all success stories, it's been a journey for Ashik and Steve. So in 2008, Steve and I started Deputy and none of us have software background. Okay. In a sense, like, you know, building software as a service for the industry. I mean, I knew how to code. I knew how to build system, but it's, it, it's one thing to uh, write software is another thing to build a business. He probably had the business knowledge, but not necessarily the building a software as a business. This has been a great journey in learning, and we have made so many mistakes, but we also got it right. I mean, Deputy is about 12 years old now, but I like to think ourselves about seven years old. I like to say that the first four or five years was just learning, okay? Learning that didn't necessarily work. So we had our second coming and rebuild the business, and it's been an absolute wild ride. But the deputy we now know, product-led, self-serve, was not how they started life at all. It was initially an enterprise model with a complex sales funnel and uninspiring onboarding that ultimately failed to deliver on what they were hoping to achieve, a product that would be loved and recommended by anyone who used it. And then we had an epiphany, hey, what if anybody could use our product? Like, you know, a Dropbox is a software we were in love with back then, and None of us have to talk to anybody in Dropbox to start using the product. What if we can make it really, really simple and easy? And then one weekend in 2012, we decided, hang on a second, we're going to have a self-sign-up, self-service product. Okay. Lock away all the configuration, the powerful features of Deputy and make it super simple that even Homer Simpson can use it. And Homer Simpson has a philosophy. If something is hard to do, it's not worth doing. And shift work is already very hard to do. How can we make it so simple that even Homer Simpson can get it? And that's actually how we built a product that was self-serviceable. So you can just go to deputy.com in our website and sign up, sign up and start using. And if you like it, you can put your credit card down to start paying for it. And whilst in the first three, four years, we had about, few dozen customers. Once we opened up the online sign-up version of our product, for the first thousand people that signed up, only two paid, which was very heartbreaking. But you know what? We learned from the data where they had blockage in the funnel, basically, continuously fix those things. And now there would be three to 400 of them that would be paying out of those thousand. But continuously being on that journey, and this is what actually then really unlocked deputy. It's a very small team. We were a team of about nine people back then. And everyone was doing everything. You know, I would do customer support myself. I'll do the sales myself. I'll do quite a lot of the demos, uh, partnerships, all of those things. And, you know, it started ticking away. And when you look back, whoa, okay, we're actually growing pretty nicely over here. We were 100,000 in revenue, then to getting to a million in revenue, broadening the team, hiring more people, bringing more leadership in, making lots of different mistakes, and then going back and correcting those mistakes. And all of a sudden you look back, huh, we, we now have customers all around the world. And one of the funniest thing that I noticed that one day there's a customer who started paying for deputy in Ireland. We actually did this thing that anybody who sign up or start paying for deputy will get a notification that will come as an app notification in deputy. 
and like, and I see that, hey, there's this customer in Ireland is playing. And I, I reach out and I find that the customer who is started paying for it used to be a backpacker here in Sydney. And in a cafe, he experienced deputy. Now he went back home, started his own business. He just came to the website and started using deputy and started paying for it himself without talking to anybody. And that was kind of like the light bulb aha moment of how big this can be. And over the years, we have found that we have customers in about 120 different countries. It's all because of the virality. Ashik and Steve are the first to admit that they didn't really have any experience in growth and marketing. And while the build it and they will come approach has been debunked time and time again, Ashik and Steve decided, okay, the marketing thing we might not understand just yet, but what we do understand is simplicity and software. So that's why they focused. That was in, in our mantra, like, you know, make it super simple. The job to be done over here is really complex. Every example that I've given you about managing shifts, managing shift swap, scheduling, paying people uh, correct wage, these are all complex jobs, but we have to think of it in a sense that it has to be super, super simple. And it's that continuous pursuit of simplification is what actually has gotten us into that product-led growth model without knowing there was such a thing as product-led growth. And um, it has served us very well and it continues to, but we have actually a long way to go to get this right. But what exactly does it mean to get it right? I asked Ashik how they went about perfecting their product. One of the things that we focus on is that a lot of businesses will focus on customer but not necessarily the user. We have been hyper-focused on the user and the user experience. One of the unique things that happens for deputy is the user is not only the manager or the business owner who is signing up, the user is also the employee who has to use the software because their business use deputy. I'll tell you a story that probably signifies this more than anything. A gelato is in a Australia's number one gelato is a deputy customer. They started with deputy when they only had one store. Now they have dozens of store. They have gone international and they have used uh, deputy to employ hundreds of people. I remember being in a gelato machine store. Uh, I was wearing my deputy t-shirt. My family was there with me and buying gelato. The guy behind the counter asked me if I work for deputy. Obviously he saw my t-shirt with the logo and I said, yep, I work for deputy. Uh, my wife corrected who I am. <laughs> and next thing I'm getting staff discount on the gelato. Uh, and obviously I asked, hey, any feedback about deputy? What, what can we do better, you as a user? And he said, it's been the biggest change in my working career. I'm like, tell me more. It's like, look, I mean, the day I got the job here, I asked, where's the schedule? I'm going to go take a photo of it in my phone. And they said, no, download an app called deputy. It will all be there. And I tell you what, this app gives me full control in my life. I'm like, how? He was like, look, if I didn't want to uh, work this weekend because I wanted to, wanted to go to a concert in my past job, I'll call the manager saying that, can I not come because I want to go to a concert? They said, okay, go find your own cover. And then I'm making 10 different calls, trading lots of different things, probably have given up a kidney to find a cover in there. And then I come back to the manager saying that, okay, can uh, Johnny do my shift? And the manager will go, no, he's more expensive than you. So no, it has to be you. And I'm already down one kidney in here. 
now with deputy, I can actually just go to my shift on Saturday. And if I don't want to work, I just swap with somebody on Sunday. Oh, who is working on Sunday? Do I like working with these people? No, I'll go change on Monday. I'll swap with somebody on Monday. He told me something that was probably the most transformational thing for me. He said, I don't think I'll ever work for a business that doesn't have deputy. And this is, I think, year seven of running, running deputy. And I sat there and I thought, all my life, I have been working to improve the life of the business owner and the manager. But yet there you are, my biggest advocate. You didn't get a choice in using deputy. You use deputy because the job you took uses deputy. And that level of love and passion you have we actually started measuring NPS after that. And we found NPS for the employees were about 20 points higher than the managers or people who bought deputy as a product. And it's through those people that we really had the growth in our business. So I, I always say to other entrepreneurs who want to get in the product-led growth journey is that, Focus on the user and the user experience. Ashik's first foray into investment was a bit of an unconventional one. He had secretly applied to a competition run by Amazon called the Startup Challenge and won, sending him off to San Francisco and ending up in a room of speed dating with investors. You got to pitch to them and they said, okay, love to be involved. Well, I'm like, well, I'm not taking an investment. They're like, what? Why are you here? I'm like, I'm only here because AWS has said that I have to stand here and meet all of you. That's what I'm doing. I actually had no idea about what inv- VCs are or what investment is, <laughs> which is quite foolish of me now that I now that I uh, think about it. But then as I uh, came back to Australia, uh, several VCs started reaching out. I remember one of the first VC meeting I had was Dev Yuan from TCV. And somehow he heard about deputy and he reached out. And I remember having a meeting with him and like you know, quite often uh, meeting a VC is like going on a date, okay. And Devon is like a VC who the minimum check they will write is something like 100 million, okay. I'm not even into the thousands in revenue. It's, it's like you're still in school and your first date is Claudia McPherson. Like, you know, I mean, there's just, I'm completely uh, out of debt myself and so is Steve. And he asked all these difficult questions. I mean, this was probably one of the most traumatizing experience um, in my life when he's asking all these questions about the business and I just have no idea how to answer any of these questions. I had such a bad experience with that first VC interaction. I actually just didn't want to interact with VCs at all, okay? They ask all these hard, tough questions, come on. Like, why do I want to waste my time? I just want to focus on building a great product. But then chance had it, I got introduced to Howard Liebman, who is EVP, but back then he, didn't, he wasn't actually doing EVP, but a customer introduced me to Howard. And Howard said, like, to build a great business, you will need partners. You will need VCs coming in who can help you. And you know, it's not just about taking ownership in the business or diluting your holding of the business, but they're actually, they will be actually partners. And he started introducing me to some local VCs. Back then, the business was having some really good traction, really good traction. We had crossed over some significant milestone in our 
you know, revenue, like, you know, say getting to a 1 million ARR is a, is a big deal uh, back then. And I remember, you know, her saying that, okay, let's go and meet some VCs in US. There's quite a lot of interest. And I remember flying into San Francisco one week and between Sunday to Friday doing 29 VC pitches, basically up, up and down Sand Hill Road in San Francisco, having the pitch deck, having rehearsed it, having practiced it, rocking up with the team and doing the pitch and uh, demoing the product uh, expressed a lot of interest. So often when founders fundraise for their company, they reflect and question some of the most core decisions they've made about the business. And for Ashik and Steve, the question of who should be CEO came up. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> Where do I even begin? I don't think I have the skills to be a, a, a CEO. My, my passion is product as CTO, and that's what I focus on. And they're like, no, I mean, the job of CEO is not actually that difficult. Like, really? What do you mean? It's like, it's three things. Number one, you have to be the holder of the vision, okay? Number two, you have to be the yardstick of culture in the company. And number three, you are the person that the customers want to look into the eye before they buy your product. Rest, you can build the office around. You don't have to be the best product person. You don't have to be the best marketing person. You don't have to be the best salesperson. All those things can be built around. And I looked at Steve Shelley, my co-founder, I'm like, well, what do you think, mate? It's like, I agree with him. They should be CEO. And as we did our series A investment, that's how I became CEO. Ashik met with 29 VCs in the US, getting plenty of term sheets and interest along the way. But it wasn't until he met OpenView that he thought, wow, these are the people I've been waiting to work with. I met them on the last Thursday. They're, they're based in Boston and uh, we met at one of their portfolio companies in San Francisco. Uh, didn't know anything about them, but it was interesting to find that how much they had researched deputy before I met them in the sense that they actually ended up doing an open view pitch to us as opposed to doing a deputy pitch to open view because they had really researched this space. They understand. And whilst I had to walk into quite a lot of VCs and explain the whole shift work economy, uh, they actually understood this really, really well already. They had already done all their research and they already had spoken to about 30 different deputy customer and told me information about deputy that I didn't even know myself in terms of what our customers think, what are the things we should do better, what are the things they see as really great at deputy. And I felt like, you know, there's mission alignment. There's a mission alignment with OpenView and deputy. And that was probably the biggest deciding factor for me in terms of not term sheet or other things, but hey, who is really passionate about your mission? Who will be true partners with you to make that mission successful? That's the only term sheet, for example, we ended up accepting. And, and my lesson over here and something that I tell every other entrepreneur is that there's a joke that, you know, you can divorce your partner, but you can't ever divorce your VC. It's really important to have the alignment with whoever you are choosing as your VC, that they really care about the mission of the company. And they also care about you as a founder in terms of serving that mission. I mean, all of us have a lot of imperfection and they will help you and guide you and be better and make the company successful. Which actually leads to my Series B story and Square Peg. I didn't ever get to meet Paul until Series A had happened. And I remember Paul coming in 
wanting to do a little bit of understanding about, hey, what could Square Peg do better? Why didn't Square Peg get the deal? And I got this wisdom out of Paul. He said, is that it's not about just talent. At the end of the day, hunger will triumph experience, which actually really aligned with my story about being hungry to learn and execute. Just like that story of how I had to go learn SQL and get the job done. And Paul's kind of wisdom around what happens in the employment market with Seek as a background. And then I got to meet the broader team as well, Tony, as well as Tushar and Dan and Barry. And then I actually started, huh, there's actually an alignment of what, how Scorpet thinks about the world and how Deputy thinks about it as well. And we were actually tracking really, really well. We were in a, every year we've been growing close to 100% year on year. And with more funding, we can definitely go and achieve more success uh, in terms of the impact we can have in the world, which actually then started our Series B conversation. And yeah, Square Peg at that round was a no-brainer. There are VCs that will give you money to be successful. But there are VCs that will invest their time their energy, their passion, their wisdom, and also give you money to be successful. Those are the VCs that I would recommend entrepreneurs to select on, to spend their time with. For me, as I got to learn more about SquarePeg, I realized it is a SquarePeg. And that's how I came into taking investment and being this journey with SquarePeg. When I asked Ashik what it's like building his company now, their progress so far has been really extraordinary. We started in a garage in Karingba here in south of Sydney with only two or three people. And all of a sudden I look back, there's 350 people working in four or five offices around the world, serving millions of people and hundreds of thousands of different business locations around the world. Building a company is not all sunshine and daisies. And I asked him how it feels. Oh, it's painful sometimes. So it does feel real, okay? Uh, I think if you look back, there are definitely a lot of successes, but there's a lot of failures as well. On day one of starting Deputy, I remember this wisdom Steve Shelley gave me is that, Sheikh, being an entrepreneur or business owner is like being on a wheel of shit, I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, you know, some days you're going to be top of the world and everything's going to be great, but don't get too comfy because it's going to get really shit and you, you think you're dying, but don't die because it's going to get better again, okay? It will just be uh, rotating. And what he didn't tell me, what he didn't tell me is the rotation speed. I have, I've been through that five times in a day at once, okay? I've woken up in the morning with some fire burning, be it a customer issue or a product issue or a HR issue. Okay, go resolve that. Then meet in an interview, one of the most amazing candidates of all time that I'm like, you know, I have to hire you right now. And just by meeting this candidate, my life is better right now. And then jump into some other issue. It, it, lots of things happen. It's the, the name of the game is perseverance. You know, you, do, you don't want to give up. You will find yourself. I mean, the way I look at myself and anybody who's starting a business, I tell them is that, Hey, if your company grows, a company is like a human body. 
as the body grows, it's like, you know, your bones growing, joints growing. And if something doesn't grow, the body is going to crumble. And in a company in growth, problems happen when one of those joints, for example, is either people, leadership or system is, it hasn't been set up properly and it can just crush. And if it's your pinky that hasn't grown, uh, that's a different story versus your vertebrae or your knee, for example. And these are the issues that you continuously have to manage and, and continually have to think around the corner and build ahead. And it also applies to yourself, you know, as CEO, you, um, your leadership skills, your organizational skills, your public speaking capability, everything that I thought that I don't have to worry about are things that I needed to go and get really, really good at, including fundraising including understanding term sheet, including uh, understanding captable dilution, talk about GDPR, talk about employment laws, talk about um, healthcare benefits in US. Okay, there's just no shortage of list of things that you, you get thrown at you and you go like, what is this? Okay, I just don't know anything about it. And then having to learn about it, consult with expert and solve those problems. I mean, I have a philosophy is that I, as executives, I only want to hire people who are really, really good at those functions than, um, than I would ever be. But then manage an executive where you have no idea what they do, okay? Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't have a degree on finance. <laughs> I mean, how do I work or manage a CFO, for example? Okay, these are all these challenging things that you as CEO have to go figure out. And as the company grows, things just become more and more complex. But then, as I said, the name of the game is perseverance. So long you don't give up, so long you have that hunger and learning mindset. When you look back, it is an unbelievable experience. Like being able to make an impact on millions of people's life. There are people in deputy who have, deputy was their first job. They grew in deputy. They got married while they're a deputy. They had, you know, their kids bought a house. You know, seeing those employee stories shine through around the world. And then seeing those stories with the customers as well. Like, you know, as I said, Gilara Messina is starting with one store and growing to so many different stores. These are amazing things to, to reflect on. This year hasn't been smooth sailing. A global pandemic is one hell of a black swan event to live through. And the industries that primarily employ shift workers, in many cases, some of the most vulnerable workers of all, have been hit particularly hard. Ashik and I spoke at length about this and also how the pandemic had affected deputy. 2020 is a year where we had a lot of plans about how we are going to really transform, innovate our go-to-market, and really win. I've hired a new CFO. I've hired a new president. They are going to start. businesses tracking well. And then this pandemic happens. Matter of fact, I was onboarding my president in San Francisco, I was in San Francisco in the week of March 11th, and it hasn't necessarily hit as yet. There's a lot of media articles. Some people are calling it like it's just media exaggeration. Some are very serious about it. I actually fully, did, fully didn't realize the impact of COVID-19 until one afternoon, Dave Zinman, who is our new president, and myself, we were actually catching train in San Francisco to go from city to south. And a peak hour train that we got on, a train that I've caught in past where you don't even get space to stand was completely empty. And then it hit me is that, okay, 
all these people who are coming, they would have, you know, gone for a coffee, gone out for lunch, met friends for dinner. The impact on the economy over here will be so, so large. And, you know, the numbers are not even, you know, there, there wasn't any level of COVID numbers in terms of either infection or death that early weeks of March. And obviously just two weeks later, the whole world started shutting down and we had a big impact. One of the leading indicators that we have in our business is that, hey, how many people actually have got shifts today? Okay. That's probably one of the biggest leading indicator in the business. And that number we saw just drop like a knife to 50%. Uh, given many of our customers are in hospitality, in retail, Pontus is a customer, for example, as airline, and seeing that, hey, how those businesses were shrinking, many customers were churning, it was like, you know, 12 years of hard work is just withering away in here. It was a, it's a very sinking feeling, the impact it will have on revenue, on cash burn, having to go through a significant restructure around the world with the business. It's probably the hardest of hardest things that I've ever had to deal with. But on the other side of it, as a business, we really quickly transitioned. We changed our focus to be, from a product and go-to-market perspective, uh, very applicable to healthcare, call center, many of these businesses, or online retail. And that actually ended up transforming and in whilst the number dropped 50% in the last two weeks, now in August, we're back up to 91%, simply by the trajectory change we did in the business, the adaptation we had across the whole team. Plus, everybody had to start working remotely. I had to onboard as president and CFO, completely working from home. Um, this, yes, in that wheel of shit, that bottom part of that shit went for three to four months, to be honest. Finally, just out of that in a sense, as a, um, myself and to many degrees, the company as well. But I think no great business has been without its challenging times. We have faced ours as well. That's it for our conversation with Ashik from Deputy. To find out more about Deputy and see some of their company swag with the iconic phrase, give a shift, you can Google deputy.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>